Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Great. My name is Roy Paul. I'll be conducting this interview. Welcome to the Gift of Freedom Block Talk Radio Show. I'm filling in for Ilyasha Shabazz, who is off doing something wonderful this evening, hopefully staying cool. I have the honor of interviewing Mr. Harvey Boyd and we're going to talk to him about his extraordinary life and the opportunities that he has had to discover himself and also to preserve the history in his town. Just a quick word from our sponsor. This broadcast is being sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to the audio books whenever and wherever you want, including however you're listening to this broadcast. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www dot audiobookblackhistory.com um, and another link that you can also try out is thegiftofaudiobooks.com and I'm going to repeat that throughout the broadcast especially towards the end. So Mr. Boyd, it is such an honor to be interviewing you when Leslie said I want you to interview someone tonight I said no and then she said but you haven't heard about who I want you to interview and then she sent me your bio and I said Actually, let's change that note to a yes. I really do want to interview him. Uh, so all of this for you starts in North Carolina in a city called Crestdale. Please tell us about your beginnings. Well, I grew up in a small city. Uh, really, it's a, a city called Matthews, which uh, uh, just recently um, renamed the area in which I lived uh, Crestdale. But before then, it was actually called Tanktown. Uh, the reason for the name was that uh, during the period of, of trains that required water and steam, uh, there was a huge tank here that, that uh, the trains would stop to fill up with water uh, so that they could go from here to the coast of North Carolina, um, nonstop, I believe. So the name uh, originally was Tank Town, but now it's called Crestdale. And we also have a school named after uh, the town, uh, the um, little community. The community itself is 130 acres of land that was uh, designated for former and freed African Americans right after the Civil War. Uh, some of you might know that uh, we were considered refugees at that point, or it felt like we were, and I'm sure we, some of us were, uh, were refugees in, in America. And this was a spot in which we were kept separated from um, the Europeans or white people at that point in time. So we were clearly one mile from uh, the location where white people were used were living, and uh, I believe that at that time the the Union soldiers were protecting us from each other. So that gives you some idea of where and why we existed. Our particular community was had everything that we needed. It had our own barbershop, our stores, and so forth. But 
because of, I guess, um, lack of opportunities during the 60s. Many of the people fled the area and uh, went to live in the big city of Charlotte. And in doing so, um, many of the houses and things that were here uh, disappeared. Um, so we are in the process now of trying to establish some kind of of equilibrium between having complete habitat houses or, and there's nothing wrong with habitat, or having houses of mixed economic development in the 130 acres of land. Uh, it's still not filled up with, with houses and stores and things. We've always had churches here. Uh, we have uh, a Baptist church of which my great-grandfather started right after the Civil War, uh, and it has progressed to be three different styles of churches and three different periods of, of time, uh, and it still exists here. We have one of the third, one of the first House of Prayers, United House of Prayers, run by Bishop Grace. Uh, this is one of the places where one of the third House of Prayers in the United States was built back in the 20s. Uh, we also had a Presbyterian church. Um, so I guess I should stop and let you, if there's any questions, um, uh, let you step in. Yeah, this is actually one of those stories where as long as you feel as if you are offering vital information about your story, please feel free to elaborate. I was just curious because very few African Americans in particular have the opportunity to really read up about history, not just about our families, but about where we came from. I'm um, curious, how did you learn about your history? Is there written documents? Did you get that presented to you? Did you go finding it? How did you learn? Well, I did, uh, but I was fortunate enough to um, move back to the area in the 80s, and my parents have lived here, and I'm currently living in the same house that they uh, built in uh, 1944, uh, and my father lived to be in his 80s, and my mom lived to be 99. So much of the history that I'm getting is from them directly, and also there were uh, records in the county of Mecklenburg that when they were attempting to do some redevelopment in the 60s and the 70s, uh, someone had researched it to the point where uh, most of those facts were, were established uh, by the county government uh, through historians that had lived here or lived in Charlotte and would, were interested in finding out why we existed. But then again, there were maybe 15 or 20 different locations in the county of Mecklenburg that were similar to Crestdale, but not as large. We're one of the largest ones with 130 acres of land. Uh, so some people were able to get, <coughs> excuse me, were able to get their own, <clears throat> not necessarily their 40 acres and a mule, but uh, I do know of people who were able to get that 40 acres and a mule. Um, but this particular area was um, uh, unique uh, in the sense that it, it was established at the same time the town of Matthews, North Carolina, was established. Um, and... You could go on the, to the web and find a lot of information on Matthews, the town, and at this point you'll also find something with, about Crestdale written in the history of 
of Matthews. The town has now, uh, in the past three years, they have decided to allow um, us in the community who still have an interest to establish a historical trail through the city, through the through the community, uh, which will highlight using either smartphones and possibly just walking through the city, through the uh, community to tell spots that were important to the residents, uh, former residents of Crestdale, and I say Crestdale, but I also mean Tanktown also, that would highlight uh, spots that were valuable uh, to the residents of Crestdale. Um, now, there is a school uh, named in the area after Crestdale, uh, and the school board um, a few years ago decided to allow, uh, rather than name uh, a school after some foreign person who had no history here, they were able. They decided to name uh, the school after the former school that was located in Crestdale, um, which at the time that I attended was a four-room school, about approximately 5,000 square feet. Potbelly stoves. Um, the teachers were were very friendly, and uh, they 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 taught us how to navigate in the community that we knew, and also taught us to navigate in the communities that we did not know at that point, uh, and what we would require to we be required to do in order to survive in America. So. I say about the school named after Crestdale. You can you can Google most of these facts and find that uh, these things do exist, and sometimes they have a history written about that particular part. Um, we're we're trying to uh, maintain our identity in the sense that we're very proud to have been one of the and to be one of the oldest. African-American communities in the state of North Carolina. Uh, however, we're not totally uh, African-American at this point. We have uh, people living from, from Europeans to uh, Southeast Asian persons. Uh, so we have a mixed neighborhood at this point. When it started out, it was primarily, it was 100% African-American because I'm told by some in the community that no one was allowed to be here unless you were African-American. So it has changed, and also in the beginning, uh, up until the 70s, uh, the town of Matthews, um, uh, when I left here in the 60s, had only 500 people. Today, the population of Matthews, which has grown geographically, uh, is now about 40,000 people. So you can actually see a tremendous change in the past 30 to 40 years. Uh, from 500 people to 40,000 people in uh, uh, an area that uh, has also grown geographically, as I said. It is, um, I would say, a bedroom community for Charlotte, North Carolina. The commuters uh, are, are mostly going to Charlotte to work every day. Uh, Crestdale, unlike most of the other parts of, of Matthews, has not been totally developed or overly developed like the other parts of Matthews. So we still have mm -hmm. somewhat of a country feel uh, when people say, why don't we get a park here? 
uh, I say to them sometimes, uh, do you realize that we are living in a park because we're surrounded by everything that's been built around us? So we have the benefits of Central Park, while at the same time not having to pay the same kind of taxes you would have to pay if you lived in Central Park. But I know that. Uh, what, is the, what is the socio? What is the socioeconomic status of the people who live there? Uh, well, we have um, from Habitat Humanity Homes uh, to houses that are probably worth about uh, 150 to 200 thousand dollars in the area. Uh, we have mm-hmm. at least 300 of those houses in the area. Um, we have a total of maybe 500 homes in the area, but they're not clustered in the same way you would find in a, in a regular development, if, if I could say. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a now, mix. Pardon? No, I was going to say, I want, I want to delve a little bit deeper into your background for a second. And then I want to come back to how this all ties into the community that you are now living in. Yes. Somewhere along the line, you discovered that you had a love for art. Yes. And there was one person in particular, Lois Nailu Jones, who was very pivotal to your recognition of that. Talk about that. Yes, yes. Uh, Mrs. Jones was one of my teachers at Howard University, I, I, which I attended. And I might add that I was fortunate enough to be able to pay my way through before the pay my way through on my own uh, before uh, the exorbitant prices of college education went up. Mrs. Jones was... You're going to make very formal... You're going to make very... A lot of students very upset with you for saying that. What, the price of education? Oh, the fact that you were able to pay, pay it off before they went up. I'm sure there are a lot of students at Howard University who would resent you for saying that, only because I know how much the tuition costs there now, and to think that at some point you were able to pay it off without taking out loans might upset a few people. <laughs> yes, well, I'm very sorry, but I, I think that should be readjusted anyway. <laughs> I'm totally against that, completely foolish. But, again, um, I was able to do that and uh, to meet some very inspiring people at that university. Uh, at that time, uh, the, during the time I was there, you would find Stokely Carmichael, you would find... Uh, Bill Cosby's uh, TV wife, uh, you would find all kinds of people who are now uh, very famous throughout the world. Um, yes, Howard and Mrs. Jones was was an inspiration to me. Um, and if you were to Google her, you would find that she's quite well-known uh, watercolorist. Uh, matter of fact, she did a watercolor of each student that she had uh, in her class. Uh, before class started, and she gave each one of them a copy of that watercolor. And I should add that I still have my watercolor <laughs> based on her and understanding that her her value of paintings would have improved, increased over the past few years. I did get to know her very well. Uh, we were we worked. Uh, she was a a watercolorist, as I say, but I was my focus was on advertising and design. Um, I had come from the background of having had a job uh, at the Charlotte Observer newspaper as an advertising artist back in the 60s. Um, and I was probably one of the only, I was the only African-American in that advertising department uh, in the 60s. Um, so I had somewhat of a head start on many of the people that I saw at Howard because I had actually had world 
uh, in-the-world experience when I did finally go back to Howard. So Mrs. Jones allowed me to transfer my knowledge of how the actual work was required in that graphics department or in the advertising department to other students who would uh, could have to see what was out, what was necessary to make it in the real world. It was not the paintings. Or it was learning how to to make ads look like ads, even though they were not uh, completed by using charcoal and and using your your understanding of various how to place things on on a newspaper or to make an ad look like an ad, uh, so that you could, it could be followed, so that it could be taken to the client and the client could approve it, and you could move forward in getting approved in the newspaper. Um, and by having that had that experience, she allowed me to transfer some of that knowledge to some of the students there. Um, but we also ended up in working in advertising agencies. She and I uh, were able to go to Chicago and spend intern do internships in Chicago at large advertising agencies back in the '60s, before early '70s, um, before um, uh, advertising it opened to African Americans. Uh, if you were to look back, you would see very few uh, ads with African Americans being featured or even talked about in the 60s or in the 70s, yeah, definitely the 60s, uh, that were advertised major products. Um, that So we went to advertising agencies, and I think because of our experience there, we were able to, to convince and to show people uh, that ads that had African Americans in it would not be something that would turn, uh, at that time, uh, Europeans' buyers off. And it was something that, that, that was a part of the change necessary to change the, the vision and the version of how America would, be, would, would portray its African Americans in this country in advertising. So I think because of her and, and some other students at that time, we were able to make some significant inroads in, in changing um, advertising in this country. Mm-hmm. So, now, at some point, you took those experiences and you moved uh, to the Washington Post. How did that happen? Well, I moved, actually, the Washington Post was first um, because that was how I paid my way through school. Uh, one of the ways, uh, I worked from... Uh, Seven to midnight every night, uh, except Saturdays and Sundays, and uh, that job allowed me to to pay my way through school. And so I'm hoping I'm not making Howard students mad, but but I did work. I <laughs> uh, didn't have a chance to deal with too much of the school uh, activities, but my goal was to become to to get my degree in in what I did. Um, the Washington Post was was quite an experience coming from the Charlotte Observer. It was a step up. The Charlotte Observer was uh, was my first entry into advertising and to newspapers. Um, and from there, I went to um, from there to advertising agencies, and from advertising agencies back to retail uh, stores. The story is long, and from retail stores to ending up working in Saudi Arabia for um, two and a half years. Um, where we and did you ever experience any? Did you ever Pardon? experience having any racism during that time? Um, yes, yes. One of the first places I experienced it was probably the Charlotte Observer, 
but then looking back, I understood that uh, um, every morning I would go to work, and uh, persons in the office, there were maybe 10 people, around 10 o'clock or 10 or 10.30, they would all get up and go have coffee. But I couldn't figure out why I was never asked to go coffee, get coffee with them. So uh, one day, and I was new to the area, uh, I walked downtown Charlotte and found that the reason they couldn't ask me to go get coffee, because they were basically okay, they couldn't ask me because they had signs on all the restaurants there that says white only. Um, so I began to understand that they couldn't ask me to go to coffee with them because where could we drink coffee except in the middle of the street back then? Um, so uh, that was my first real understanding of of being in downtown Charlotte um, back in the 60s uh, where things were really segregated. We did finally find ways to, to get around that. And so today when I walk down there, I, I'm very aware of even those spots that were there that I could not go into. Um, so, yes, I did experience that kind of racial uh, segregation and discrimination during that period. Mm-hmm. Now, explain what Freedom Summer is. Freedom Summer. Now, I'm. What do you mean? I'm. I'm a little. Oh, that safe. was that was a question. That was a question that was requested of me to ask you, um, and I was told that you had a meaning to Freedom Summer and what that meant. I think. My concept of what Freedom Summer is, is to um, be able to import or to give knowledge to those who did not have the experience so that I believe that if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. And if you have uh, the opportunity to learn something about our particular unique history in America, it's important uh, to for you to be free, one has to know what they're free from. And if you don't know that, then you you could end up repeating the same process in a different form. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. And, and, and to that end, I wanted to touch upon the the long-standing notion that a lot of people have, rightly or wrongly, that younger people don't aren't tapped in to the history. And, and there's a debate about whose responsibility is it to teach, whether, you know, the older generations are supposed to teach or whether younger generations are supposed to seek out that knowledge. Um, what do you think about the transferring of information uh, and, and how it's supposed to be passed down and by whom? Well, I think I was a reader. And in order to function in any society, for any society to continue to function, their history must be passed down from the older people. Um, I, I, I can't think of a, a country in the world that can have any knowledge being passed down from uh, passed up to, for, to from younger people. Um, it just doesn't seem possible. You haven't lived long enough to have a uh, a record. When you get to be 40, you have an opportunity to look back in your life, and you can also look forward as to what's happening. Before then, you're you're just walking along sometimes, unless you <laughs> unless you are a reader who understands and is is 
is watching how history has a tendency in many in some cases to repeat itself mm-hmm. I was listening to some music uh, this morning from Marion Makiba mm-hmm. who as you know was married at one point to Stokely Carmichael and you mentioned him uh, mm-hmm. in the, uh, during your remarks and I I think it's appropriate if you feel comfortable enough giving a little history lesson of Stokely Carmichael, and I ask you that because there's a new book out uh, and, um, about his life. A professor from Tufts University just released it literally this past week talking about his life, and, and I wonder if you're able to expound about um, his life and legacy as a small little history lesson, if you can. Well, the fact that he was he played a pivotal part in uh, helping awaken um, African-Americans. Uh, back that time it was called, I'm not sure they were called African-Americans, but anyway, he was able to capture the imagination, uh, I don't know how you'd look at it, of, of people in this country and throughout the world that gave an alternative sometimes way of using not necessarily nonviolent actions to make things happen in this country. Um, so he had a part in playing in playing to awaken people as a seriousness of our desire to be as free as possible within this capitalist society in which we live. Um, I don't know him or did not know him personally. Uh, I only know that he was at the school at Howard during the period in which I existed there. Uh, and mm-hmm. No, that was fine. That was fine. I, I just, uh, whenever possible, I, I think it's important uh, not, you know, not only to say uh, different figures and people within history, but it, and sometimes it helps just to kind of hear it over and over again, just hearing the name Stokely Carmichael or some of the other four leaders, because a lot of times people listening to this broadcast even may not know who some of these people are. Yes. And I, I think whenever possible, a little history lesson so they have some knowledge to take with them. And if they ever come across that name again, hopefully they won't forget where they heard it from. Well, I'm so grateful for the Internet, the world Internet today, is that there's almost nothing that you can't find that does not exist uh, on that Internet. Um, it had We had that when I was in college or whatever, we life would have been much easier, but we had to dig it up through magazines and, and books and libraries. But the best part about the Internet and the world wide world, unless, they, unless it's completely controlled uh, in the future, is that you have the world in your hand walking around on your phone. So there's no excuse now for us not knowing uh, our histories, um, although that's what I'm hoping to do with the home that I currently live in is to donate this home to make it a small history museum for African Americans and about African Americans, especially in Mecklenburg County. Um, If you go to various museums in the county so far, there's nothing that highlights the contributions that African Americans have made in this particular location. Or, yes, most museums are highlighting uh, uh, persons like Muhammad Ali or other well-known people, but I think it's time for us to develop museums locally that will highlight uh, the little people 
as they say. So by there, there is no better way. There is no better way that we could have ended the interview. I was going to ask you as closing remark to talk about the other ways that you are preserving the legacy and the history in your town. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and naturally, because you were such a gifted interviewee, you just went right into it. Um, um, for, for those who want to get more information, is there a website uh, or information online that people couldn't go to, or if there, if there isn't a website, are, are there any preferred word searches that they can Google or things that they should be uh, in tuned to when trying to find out more information about what you're doing? I would simply give my email address and... Uh, they can email me with their names and whatever they would like, questions they'd like. My email address is K-A-W-M-E at Mac, M-A-C dot com. I can repeat that. K-A-W-M-E at Mac, M-A-C dot com. And if there's anything that you need, because we will be looking, we will be looking for items, uh, preferably things that we can scan into the computer and make it uh, less item fulfilled, but more of a computer-generated kind of operation within this museum to highlight local histories of persons and families that will be maintained in this house, hopefully forever. Um, And it will become, and it will be, and it is a 501c3 that uh, donations could be um, given to the museum to make sure it exists uh, forever. Um, That way, through my email address, I will be able to give you information at this point on that. Or? Very well. And I'll make sure that we also will post that information in the link that will be embedded uh, with this interview so that if people want to get in contact with you, they, they can see the visual there on their screen. It's the uh, beginning. Mr. Boyd, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was quite enlightening. Um, it's always interesting to talk to people who uh, have lived through life and are willing to share their knowledge with other people. And the fact that you're willing to take your house and instead of maybe perhaps donating it to a family member uh, or selling it and making a profit, you want to give it back to the community so that they can be a physical location so that they can learn information. For that, you deserve a great deal of praise for that. And I, I appreciate you for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. That was Harvey Boyd, uh, who is currently on a mission to preserve the land in the community of Crestdale, located in Southeast Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I'm Roy Paul for the Gist of Freedom. This show was sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're listening to us with right now. If you sign up at their website using the URL www.audiobooksblackhistory.com, www.audioblackbooks.com, www.audiobooksblackhistory.com, you can get a discount on their services. 
Once again, that's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. And you can find more information on the Gist of Freedom radio show at thegistoffreedom.com. Thank you and good night.